Architects and AEC professionals, it's time to connect, grow, and redefine your professional journey. Imagine a place where you're part of a vibrant community, accessing resources tailored to your needs, and earning continuing education credits effortlessly. That place is here at Gable Media. Join our legacy membership, your exclusive pass to a world of opportunities. With instant access to all our CE courses and groundbreaking content, you're set to excel. And here's the game changer. Lock in your legacy membership at an unbeatable introductory price of just $29 per year, forever. Plus, enjoy contests, events, and unique freebies. But hurry, I hear this special pricing won't last long. Spots in our legacy membership are limited and filling up fast. Follow the link in the show notes to be part of something groundbreaking with Gable Media. I think we uh, take care of bringing people up in the organization, supplementing with people from the outside like me uh, where necessary, but by and large trying to understand, really understand what people's uh, ambitions and what their dreams are. And, and you know, Patrick was always great at that, at the uh, understanding dreams. We have to go through all these things and we have to go through all of the hard work and, and build up so that at some point we could focus on dreams. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I'm joined by Patrick McLaney, FAIA, and former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. This is Build Smart. Patrick shares stories from his remarkable 50-year career at HOK, rising from junior designer to CEO of the company. With themes of leadership, finance, people, culture, and so much more, you'll find that there's a lesson in every episode. Welcome back to Build Smart. If you've been listening along, take a breath. We are now on the heels of what was probably the pinnacle of danger for HOK as a business. In our last episode, Patrick shared the story of that extraordinary day where HOK was at risk of going under. Three separate crises, any of which could have ended the firm, all came to a head on one day and fell to Patrick as the then first COO of HOK. Patrick was able to buy some time to develop a strategy to solve the problem, but quickly found himself thrusted further into the storm, now into the role of CEO. If you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to all the episodes in order to hear Patrick's full story and insights into how to design a world-class architecture firm. In today's episode, Patrick with the full responsibility of leading the firm out of this triple crisis, has to turn his strategy into reality. Step okay, one so was to rejuvenate episode, upper management. You became CEO. You were given lots of authority and you were given a mandate to, to fix things. And, and, so, and you introduced the, the pyramid strategy. So where did you begin with that pyramid strategy? How did you start implementing that? Mark. As I was describing the pyramid strategy, I kept saying to the board, we're in this together. We caused these problems and only we can get ourselves out of them if we work together. And so the board liked the pyramid strategy. They liked especially the part about the dreams. But I said, I reminded everybody, you, you can't 
do the dreams and forget the rest. You have to work your way up to the dreams. That's the whole idea. And so we had to start with really basic, and I called it literally a sports term, blocking and tackling. And the board, I think, after the board meeting, I was congratulated on the strategy and so on. But I could tell that people were reserving judgment. Will McLamey really do what he says? Will he hold the board accountable for the performance of the first step in the pyramid? So I was quite aware of that. So I was, I think the time after I made that pronouncement at the board about the strategy were the busiest of my career, actually. So I started with the base of the pyramid, the strong board. And the cornerstone of the board is the executive committee. The executive committee of five people sat on a board with the, the leaders of all the offices and all the uh, market practices like healthcare and aviation. So we all sat together on the board, but every week the XCOM met. And I started with the XCOM. If I could get the XCOM to start taking responsibility for individual actions and following up on things, then we could go to the board. It would be an easier step to go from the XCOM to the board. So at the first meetings of the XCOM after the pyramid strategy, I came up with a very basic tool of blocking and tackling called a to-do list. <laughs> and the to-do list said, you know, Bill Valentine, you need to talk to the design leader of such and so office because their profits aren't high enough. Bob Pratzel, our CFO, you need to talk to the leadership of another office because they're not collecting their money. And you need to not just talk to them, but set specific goals for collections. These were really basic things, Mark. And the thing that I think most importantly here is it takes grit. The once over lightly doesn't do it. So every week at the XCOM meetings, I had a to-do list. And your name stayed on next to a to-do item until you finished it. And uh, if it wasn't done properly, it went back on again. And my colleagues on the XCOM, I think truthfully, hated the to-do list. They didn't like it. And it became a kind of a good-natured game after a while of seeing if they could knock the list down so that they came into the next XCOM meeting clean and they could get bragging rights over the rest of the XCOM. And uh, gradually, the XCOM got into a new routine. Instead of just talking about, you know, we need to fix something in the Dallas office, somebody was actually assigned to do something about it. So a lot of these were early, quick wins. Let's say you were assigned, you got to get an office to collect a great big overdue bill. Might be half a million, might be a million dollars, might be more. Well, those were profound changes to a firm that didn't have somebody after people with a to-do list. And um, this gradually began to have a good impact first on collections, which is actually, if you're going to prioritize improving your cash flow, collections is the place to start. Getting more profitability is a longer term problem, but of course that has to be solved as well. The other thing that was clear to me is that I needed more help. The XCOM had not grown to take into account the growth of the firm. Remember, HOK was founded with three leaders, and those three people continued on leading the firm until the firm had maybe six offices with eight or 900 people. Well, finally, 
by the time I got to be CEO, it was clear that the XCOM needed to do a lot of leading and there wasn't enough XCOM to go around. And in particular, I was interested in a COO, somebody to replace me as the chief operating officer. I was also keenly aware that Bill Valentine, who was the design leader of HOK, was five years older than I. And uh, Bill needed to find a design successor, even though he was in excellent health and full of energy. So I began to look for a, a COO and I began to have conversations with Bill Valentine about selecting and naming a design successor that got on the to-do list, just like everything else. The next week, well, Bill, how's it going? So finally I met privately with Bill. It was easy because we were both in San Francisco. Well, I've kind of looked through the list and I'm, I'm not really happy with anybody. Well, let's go through the list again, together. And as we went through the list, one name caught my eye and that was Bill Helmuth. And so I said, you know, I think Bill Helmuth is really a good, strong designer. He is also an excellent leader. His partners in the DC office seem to really love him. Uh, and they're constantly and consistently among the best performing offices in terms of profitability and low, low incidence of claims or issues with clients, et cetera. Bill said, well, I, you know, he's just really so strong-willed. I'm just not sure. So we ended up doing something that I think was really good with Bill's, Bill Valentine's agreement. We built, brought Bill Helmuth into the executive committee or XCOM, but not as Bill Valentine's chosen design successor. He said, you know, Patrick, why don't we get him in the XCOM and see how he does? How does he work as a partner to us and to our other colleagues first, before we finally make that last step and name him my successor for design? So that's what we did. So we had one new person in the XCOM, but that person, Bill Helmuth, was keenly interested in the blocking and tackling, the, the profitability, the collections, and became a real force inside the XCOM to help with this process. It took me a longer time to name a COO. I had somebody in mind actually at the very beginning, and that was Tom Robson, who was the leader of our Houston office. If you recall, HOK Houston arose from the firm's acquisition of the original CRS Architectural Group, which was looking to leave the behemoth CRSS company that they had grown into as the company went public and greatly diversified its services in the building industry. Well, Tom was a superb uh, managing principal, but Tom also had just an excellent grasp of the ins and outs of management. How do you get things done? How do you collect money? How do you budget a project? How do you forecast a cash flow for the project? All the rest of it. He also knew a lot about getting buildings built. And if a building was having difficulty being constructed, Tom was the man that I called on, even though he was in Houston. He actually spent a fair amount of time in Los Angeles uh, working for HOK, uh, helping one big difficult project get built the LA County USC hospital, county hospital project, a mammoth teaching hospital that ran into some problems during construction. So uh, I asked Tom to join us as a COO 
and it had a an immediate good effect, just like it did with Bill Helmuth. And Tom and Bill Helmuth both got their shares of to-do lists to help the firm grow and improve. So it sounds like you grew the XCOM, you brought in some people with some, some needed strengths, named some successors so everybody knew who was coming up through the ranks, created some, some stability in the XCOM, and some accountability, a layer of accountability that really is the thing that strengthened everything within the XCOM, gave people, said, okay, this is your responsibility, and you reminded them every, at every meeting that that's their responsibility. The XCOM held those people to account and things started getting done. Then you need to move on to the next part of the board of directors, uh, the board of directors itself. What was the strategy with that group? Well, it was basically the same thing, except uh, same song, second verse. It was uh, having the board of directors be accountable, just as we had, I had asked them to be in the pyramid strategy. The board was, was not, should not, in anybody's firm be a lunch club. It should be a working group. Uh, if you're going to earn the lead, the right to lead the firm, you better be leading every day in your own office or in your own part of the practice. And you need to, to start thinking about the firm-wide goals, not just the goal for your own office. So in much the same way that we did with the XCOM, and you know, I don't want to, I don't want people to think that. I worked on the XCOM and then we worked on the board. There was actually a great deal of overlap. Yeah. That's why I was so busy because working on the board meant that each month, Bob Pratzel prepared these board reports that in black and white, actually black and red, tell you the truth, showed side by side how every office and every practice was doing in terms of that month's income and expense and profit or lack of profit. Uh, red on the, on the sheet meant somebody wasn't doing something right. And if you had a lot of red next to your name, next to your office or your, your practice, uh, maybe the healthcare practice, you got asked in the board meeting, well, what are you going to do about this? When can we expect that you'll collect that fee? When can we expect that you'll turn around that problem project? So this had not happened before in HOK. And again, it, it, Mark, it wasn't once over lightly. It was every month. And the people on the board didn't like to be called on. So there was peer pressure that was brought to bear. There were always offices that performed well and groups that performed well. And there always were ones that underperformed. And if they were consistent underperformers, well, then finally that the leadership of that office or that market practice got back to the XCOM as a discussion topic. Do we have the right leaders? Again, three leaders per group, marketing, management, and technical practice. Did they have the right mix of people there? Were they working well together? So we had lots of, you know, this was an HR kind of discussion. Sometimes we had the right people and they weren't working well, if they didn't get along or didn't too much like each other, they had their own little turf wars. Then sometimes we got a to-do list on the XCOM. Let's go to an office and have a conversation with the leaders. You know, if you can't get along, then we'll have to find somebody else who can get along. And people were watching and waiting to see, would we actually move people aside if they couldn't do this? 
And the answer was, well, yes, we did. Anytime we removed somebody from the board, it was because they were removed from a position of leadership in their office or their market practice, or sometimes removed from the firm. And that always happened after an XCOM conversation about it. And we talked about everybody. We talked about a marketing leader, a design leader, or a technical leader as an XCOM. And there were heated debates about these people. Well, you know, that person, yeah, I know they're not such a great leader, but boy, they've got some really good clients. And if we let that person go, those clients will go with them and that office will suffer. It was usually something like that. And uh, so the decisions were not easy decisions to make. But I think to our credit, we finally got to real decisions about these. And once we made a decision that somebody needed to be removed for a good cause, we never dispatched somebody else to actually talk to that person and dismiss them from either their job or the firm. It was usually me uh, that did that. Sometimes it was somebody else. And we never did it remotely. It was always in person. So I would fly to an office. Usually the HR leader, John Mann, or somebody in HR would be there. And uh, each dismissal, and I didn't call them firings, that's a crude word, or each separation from the firm uh, was done with great reluctance. Again, remember the Helmuth principles. You want to attract and keep bright people and give them a career, let them grow up inside the firm. And you don't waste or throw away people willy-nilly or unnecessarily. You do it reluctantly. So each one of these was reluctant. I told uh, John Mann many times, you know, John, this is the hardest part of the job. If I ever get to the point where I like to do this and I never did, please take me out and shoot me because I will, I will no, no longer be qualified to lead this great firm. So we let people go on occasion. And um, it was always with, Mark, and I'm very proud of this, an offer of extended amount of support for that person to stay on their feet. We extended the health care. We usually gave them a more generous severance than was the norm. So they had some money in their pocket. And we even offered help for them to help them land a new job. I had people come back to me later and say, you know, I didn't agree with it at the time, but now I see it clearly. And thank you, thank you for the way you did it. And the class, I've heard that word many times, the class with which you did it, because it, it meant so much to me. I was able to put my career back together and get back on track and learn some really good lessons in the process. So we didn't do a lot of this, but the ones that we let go were an example. And it's just like anything else in life. The other people around the board, uh, they got the idea, oh, we're really serious this time. And so we had to set a few examples, perhaps, to bring everybody over to the idea that, no, we're really serious and we mean what we say. So uh, people got, maybe the better word for this is they got in harness with each other. It wasn't my office versus yours. It was our firm and our, our firm together is, is for us to take care of. Well, I just want to remind everybody last episode and yeah. the crises that 
you were experiencing, the firm was experiencing. And the reason why you became CEO was a, a mandate to fix those crises, right? You had a timeline, right? You had a limit. You had to get these things fixed in order to start earning the money to start addressing those crises from last episode. So if you haven't listened to the last episode, go back and listen to that because you'll yeah. understand why we're talking about what we're talking about here today. And so in response to that, it sounds like you had to make some very tough decisions, apply some tough love to the to the board. Before we jump into that next big step that you took, I, I wanted to ask a question about you were you were doing all of these, making all these changes, holding people accountable. How was the morale of the board of directors? How do they feel about this? That is an excellent question. The first reaction, and this happened in the XCOM as well. Pride. Oh, we can do this. We can be better. We can collect money. We can turn around problem projects and problem offices. There was a resentment maybe on the part of a couple of individuals that I'm being told what to do. But all of that dissipated fairly quickly. And, and over a period of, I'd say after the first 12 months, then it was our board. It was our, and the XCOM felt the same way. It's not that we didn't have disagreements or differences of view, but we held, had the same strategy and the same goals. We really did want to climb that pyramid. We didn't, we wanted to have a firm that we were proud of and the firm that would take good care of clients and the people inside the firm at the same time. Not one that lurched from crisis to crisis. Everybody understood that at some level. The, Mark, the, the positive nature of this is that, you know, when somebody collected money, let's say, that was touted at the board meeting. So-and-so's office just collected a big bill from such-and-so client that was overdue, and they got a big attaboy. And so sharing positive news, not just uh, the negative, is part of it. Yeah. Uh, if you say, we have to do this together, and as you're doing these accomplishing things together, you have to say so. A big part of this for me, too, that's uh, I traveled a lot. I wanted to, to visit every office at least twice the first year that I was CEO. And my typical visits to the offices uh, started with everybody, not just the leadership in the office. And uh, gave them the pyramid story. Here's what we're doing. Here's why. And here's the role that your office is playing. Here are some of the good things that are happening. Here's the work. It was very open. I shared the financials of the firm widely. Many firms don't do this. I found it essential. And people wanted to know. They didn't understand. A lot of people thought, well, gee, HOK is so big that if my office is losing money, it doesn't really matter. It's a rounding error. Of course, that was not true. So helping people understand the firm in a new way and, and new openness was part of this as well. I was fond of saying, uh, I'll talk about anything you want, except if it gets to be personal about some people. But I'll talk about the financials, the firm's performance, the claims, anything except people. Although I did talk about and extol the, the people that were having a success. So share the good news openly 
if there is something difficult or that has to be dealt with, do that privately behind closed doors. And part of great operations, you're, you're talking about traveling and, and visiting the regional offices on a regular basis, meeting those people, having those meetings. Part of growing the next step in the pyramid, the great operations part, also may require finding new leaders. Yes. Did you have to also find some new leaders? And, and how did you do that? Great big challenge. Uh, when you have a leader, and if you dismiss a leader in an office, you have to obviously put somebody else in their place. How do you pick somebody? In the, in the HOK organization with the culture of the firm, it's almost always better if there's somebody available to bring up somebody else in the firm as a leader, either in that same office or maybe by transferring them from another office. Someone who has earned the, the right to be considered as a leader. Sometimes we couldn't. Sometimes that person wasn't available. So we had to go outside and recruit. And recruiting from the outside was sometimes fabulously successful and sometimes didn't work so well. Uh, if they're in the firm, we know who they are. We've got an idea of how they're going to perform. If they're from the outside, maybe they're going to be fine, maybe not. Often we could find somebody in the same office, which was easy because then we didn't have to relocate people. But we did keep the HR department busy with uh, moving people. That's one of their functions. And uh, they developed a protocol for how to move people and their families and help them get settled in a new place and so on. It's expensive if you want if you want to do it. The person you really hope the person works out. I have a couple of examples of a person that we transferred, Ricardo Masha, an architect originally from Chicago, went to school at UCLA, and through a whole series of circumstances, uh, ended up working in Mexico, learned Spanish on his own. He speaks perfect English, and now he speaks, I think, close. To my ear, perfect Spanish. He ended up marrying a woman he met in Mexico who was the daughter of Cuban refugees from the time of uh, when Castro took over Cuba. Uh, Ricardo was not working for us. He was working for another firm. We bought a firm in Mexico City when Sinkoff was the CEO. And uh, the firm struggled with leadership as soon as the person we bought it from left to retire. And uh, one person that was in our office at the time, Roger Soto, kept seeing that our little firm in Mexico City was kept being out hustled or out beat by another firm. And well, who's the leadership in that firm? Ricardo Masha. And uh, if you can't beat them, see if you can recruit them. <laughs> so Roger Soto, to his great good credit, arranged to have lunch or coffee or something with Ricardo and said, how would you like to come work for us? To which I promptly said, yeah, no, I'm not interested at all. <laughs> you know, why would I ever, you know, leave what I have? And then um, as uh, things happened in Latin America, uh, we had a pretty serious economic crisis at that point. And um, I'd just been recently married and one thing led to another. And I decided that maybe it was a good time to, to give Roger a call back. I think it was maybe a year later or something. And then, uh, yeah, one thing led to another and I came over to HOK and, and that's, uh, you know, where we left it, Roger was, Eduardo had cleared off and Roger was up in Houston and, uh, you know, working with yourself, uh, John Mann, Bill Valentine said, you know, 
essentially, don't worry, you guys, we'll, we'll send somebody down from the U.S. to kind of, you know, help guide the office, to which, you know, I said, fine, you know, that's that sounds like a good idea. And then the more I thought of it, you know, I thought to myself, well, who in the hell are they going to send that knows this place better than I do? I don't know anything about architecture. You know, I've only been out of school five years or something. I said, but I know, I know a lot about this place and I know about these people. And so I, I spoke with you and, and Bill V and said, uh, here's a crazy idea. You know, what, what if I just took it over? To which you guys said, okay, that sounds like a great idea. Go for it. And what that moment gave me in my career was a, a huge sense of, um, of responsibility. It also gave me, you know, sort of crystallized the sort of entrepreneurial spirit of HOK. It's, and I've said this many times to people later, if you ask for something, you better be prepared for someone to say yes. And then you got to go do it. Then you have to deliver. So with Ricardo in responsible for our Mexico City office, the office began to prosper. It was just quite remarkable. But in Ricardo, the Mexico City office never grew to the size of a, to be a major HOK office. I think the peak size was maybe around 50 people. Pretty good size for an office in Mexico City, but a very difficult marketplace. A lot of corruption and a lot of difficulty in getting clients to pay properly and so on. So eventually, Ricardo became what I'd call my fixer. If I had a, an office that was struggling, I would go to Ricardo and say, Ricardo, I'd like you to move and go to another office. The initial conversation with you was uh, Ralph Courtney and I sort of cooked up an idea that I would go to, to Spain to run this project for Telefonica and try to use that as a sort of the impetus to, to grow a little practice in, in Spain in Southern Europe. And then it wasn't much long after that where you called me. I remember this as it was yesterday. I was sitting in our apartment in Madrid and uh, I think my daughter had just come home from school and it's the time change and so on. And, you know, I think Pat, I think Susie said, you know, Patrick wants to talk to you. So I got on the phone with, uh, with Patrick and you said, I want to propose something to you. I want you to move to San Francisco to become a partner to Ed McCrary in that office. That means you have to leave Spain and uproot your family and and all that. And I'm not taking no for an answer. So I'll, I'll call you back tomorrow to hear you say yes. <laughs> and, you know, I uh, just completely trusted that it would work out. And uh, as I have every time since then, before and since, was uh, mainly uh, you and I, you know, uh, of course, you know, Bill V on, on occasion, uh, John Mann saying, we want you to do this and we'll work it out. We'll work out the detail. And I had every confidence that HOK would, it would work out the detail. And if there was anything that came up, any, any impediment that you would make it right. And that's been, that's been true for, that was true then. And it was, it, it was true. It's been true for 26 years, frankly. And uh, by the time I made it to San Francisco, it is probably a course of a couple of weeks. I, I was talking with you and a bill about Hong Kong. And Hong Kong was having some trouble there at that time. And it started off with, well, when you come to the US, you can help San Francisco, but you also be closer to Asia. And, uh, you know, a guy uh, who used to work for us there, he, you know, you can probably use your help. As odd as it seems, the Hong Kong practice and the Mexico practice are very similar. 
because you work all over the region, you work in multiple languages, it's a whole different system. HOK's system is very different in, in the foreign offices. And so I actually had a lot of lot more kinship with, with San Francisco than with an office closer, uh, closer by, like in Houston. So, but as I'm making that trip from Madrid to San Francisco, it went from maybe you can help out the, in Hong Kong once in a while to maybe you could spend a little time there. And then by the time I got to San Francisco was maybe you can split your time and get San Francisco. Maybe you can do both things, San Francisco and Hong Kong. So no sooner did I spend my first month in Hong Kong, uh, San Francisco, I turned around and then spent the next, it was five or six weeks in Hong Kong. And then spent the next two years kind of going back and forth yeah, then you turned around and said to me, didn't you go to school in California? Didn't you go to school in L.A., Ricardo? And I'm like, yeah, I did. Well, what? you know what? L.A. You know, think, have you ever gone? When's the last time you were in, in L.A.? And I thought, oh, Patrick, I can't move again. I mean, my wife is awesome. But if I tell her to move to L.A., you know, she's going to have a fit. Um, and to which you, being your charming self, said, just just go for a weekend. Just check it out. You don't have to, don't have to say yes. You don't have to say no. Okay. So we went for a weekend. It rained like hell. Uh, it was one of the worst probably weeks, weekends I've ever spent in LA. And, uh, we left there going, yeah, I think we should move here. Each time Ricardo took time to, he put it, unpack the problems of the office to figure out what was going on with the office, with the clients, the consultants, and so on. And he said it takes, the process of unpacking takes about two years for him to get a grip on things. We had two phrases, you know, sort of shining a light in every corner um, and then sort of unpacking things. And when you don't know about how something works, um, you really have to pull it apart, look at it, figure it out, ask a lot of questions before you can really reassemble it. It's very difficult. A lot of these things of un unpacking have to do with people. And, um, you know, as, I, as I've often said, if I show up, it's probably because things aren't working that well. I mean, you wouldn't need me if I was, you know, if, if I show up. So uh, a lot of the issues happen to be around people, some very difficult personal issues and, you know, partner conflicts between partners and so on. So when you do that, I think people find that you're paying attention. And, you know, the places where I spent a lot of time, a, a, a lot of these corners of the office, nobody was paying attention. And that could be on, you know, how the projects are being delivered, right? Um, right, you know, everybody loves the front end design and it's all great. We all fall in love in it. But, you know, how does it actually get executed and how does it get built in the field? You know, that whole stream. But it's also accounting, right? Is how are people using our money? Like, oh, you're going to a few extra lunches more than you should. And I think I, I think people are generally good, but I think over time, nobody watches and nobody cares and things just sort of spin out of control. But when, you, when they find out, one of the common threads is when they find out that I actually know what goes into these numbers and go, know what goes into you know, delivering a project, they know someone's paying attention. Therefore, they pay attention more. So that was another one. And I'll just leave you with one other one because this one comes up quite a bit. And that is, you know, who works at HLK? Who, who is part of this culture? Who fits? And then you realize that you have people with similar motivation. The people who are not aligned and are not motivated the same way, they really stick out. And then it makes it really easy later to see 
those who are not aligned, it's a very easy decision to uh, help those people get aligned or help them move move along with their careers. So those things, certainly leadership, looking at the entire staff, and then accountability, you know, uh, putting those guardrails and then making people accountable, I think are pretty common topics among all those offices that, that I touched on. Toward the end of my tenure as CEO, we had an, an urgent need because somebody resigned to have a new leader in HOK Chicago. And that's where Ricardo was from. So for the last time I had anything to do with it, Ricardo relocated from Chicago. And his poor wife had never lived in anything other than a warm tropical or warm climate. <laughs> so, so he was home, but he brought his, his family who, who have been enjoying Southern living all these years. He basically went full circle. He's in Chicago to this day. And I said, well, how was it to, to return to Chicago? Because he, he had no intention of remaining in Chicago after college. He wanted to go somewhere else, like many young architects. He said, it's really interesting. Yeah, I run into people I went to high school with, right? And they say, what have you been doing? And I think to myself, if I tell them what I've been up to, first of all, they'll never believe it. And second of all, they th they, they'll probably think of the most arrogant son of a gun they'd ever met, right? So it's comfortable, but it's it's not the same. And as I said to you many times, you know, as a kid growing up in Chicago, couldn't even dream being an architect because I never met one. Uh, and then to be able to to actually practice architecture literally around the world, that was a dream too big to dream. I have to pinch myself still. So there's a unique case where somebody was able to step in, rebuild an office, then be flexible enough and his family be flexible enough to uproot again and try something new. Most people probably wouldn't be able to do that, but Ricardo did, and I'm eternally grateful. The other person I want to talk about is, is an example of a good, successful recruit from outside. Well, we recruited Carl Galliotto from SOM New York. But you got to think, well, SOM New York and HOK St. Louis and then the world are probably different, and they are. But Carl turned out to be just tailor-made for HOK. Uh, I didn't set out to recruit him. I met him by accident. But after he and I met, we liked each other. We found we had a lot in common. We thought the same, and we stayed in touch. One thing that, that Bill Helmuth said to me when um, I was getting close to being recruited, I met him for a drink in, in Washington, D.C., over in Georgetown. And I'd been down in Washington for another meeting, and we were at the, at, at the bar. I think it was at the Ritz-Carlton. And Bill came in, and, and, and Bill and I used to work together years back. And, and we're having a drink, and he goes, at HOK, he said, you know, in HOK, everybody wants you to do well. And I had a drink. and I was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? No, no. He says, I'm serious. People really want each other to do well. I'd say it's some firms are competitive on the inside. Right. HOK is collaborative. It's a huge difference. It's, I always like to say the amount of friction that you can reduce inside the firm gives you strength to compete on the outside. Absolutely. Our competitors are on the outside, not on the inside. 
That's it. We don't want any calls from coming inside the house like a horror movie. <laughs> and when we needed a new leader for HOK New York, his name immediately came to mind. He was still at SOM. And I arranged through a mutual friend, somebody in HOK New York that was his best friend, to have a private dinner with Carl in Manhattan. And we talked uh, over a very long dinner. And uh, he asked a thousand and one questions about HOK. Carl was by then a partner at SOM New York, the technical partner for that office. But Carl was uh, not as happy there, didn't feel that his career had been as fulfilling as it could have been. And at HOK, he was given the chance to really set the stage for how the technical architecture of HOK could be shaped. We learned, I learned uh, over a period of years that the original three-person leadership group at HOK, a marketer, a manager, and a designer, didn't actually fit what the modern practice needs. We actually need four leaders. We do need the marketer, that's for sure. And of course, we need the designer. That's what we're about. And we need a manager to manage projects and also to manage offices and manage the relationship with banks and so on. But we need a technical leader. We need somebody for all the project architects, the technical people on the project that really understands and loves how buildings are put together. And they can lead a group like this in the firm toward better and better and better implementation of great design work. And I had um, some good moments of reinforcement in my past with my uh, with my former firm. I was in a, uh, an elevator and there were a group of people in the elevator and, um, and one of them asked and they said, are you Carl Galliotto? And I said, yes, I am. And this person turned to the, uh, their colleagues and said, this is the person who makes so-and-so's designs into great buildings. <laughs> and that was one of the nicest things that, that was just this casual conversation that someone in the real estate industry, because they were in the real estate industry, had recognized what it means for an architect with a technical orientation of building systems and building science, what it really means to take a design concept and then make a great building out of it. And that was particularly lovely. But it was not just at a personal level, it really reinforced to me what the value that one could bring to a project with the appropriate, not merely being a technician, but being an architect, truly understanding design, being able to understand design intent, being able to understand design concepts and taking those design concepts and executing the project with the full consistency of expression throughout. You know, I'm, I'm very fond of having talked about building materials, which, you know, I dearly love all kinds of building materials, whether it's, you know, stone or concrete or, you know, having a vowel, vowel at the end of my name. It's, it's obviously stone, concrete, terrazzo, you know, <laughs> <laughs> those sorts of materials, the plaster that I like best. But the, the idea that, you know, materials begin to give the building a, um, a vocabulary, the massing, but the materials give the vocabulary, the, the detailing of the materials allow the materials to speak. And um, 
uh, I'm very passionate about beautiful detailing, use of beautiful materials, or even beautiful detailing when materials aren't so beautiful, but they're more economical. One can still give them their voice by appropriately detailing them. So HOK always had three leaders, but eventually we understood that given the scale of HOK, we needed four disciplines, four disciplines in the design world, not three. So Carl became our first real technical leader in the firm and uh, set about after I recruited him, not only leading HOK New York, becoming a member of our board of directors, and shortly afterwards joining the XCOM, but also uh, recruiting and, and building up HOK technical leadership in all of our major offices, an enormous mammoth task. He also became a very good dear friend of mine. Uh, and again, it was because you know, I saw in Carl this personality that fit to a T what I thought of as HOK culture. So he was a man with HOK cultural leanings existing in, in SOM New York, where he was not as happy. And finally, as we wrap up this episode, you centralized some of HOK's support departments. Why was that important to great operations? Yes. Well, again, HOK grew from the original founding office in St. Louis. And without thinking too hard about it, people just said, well, St. Louis is a successful office. When we start the second office in San Francisco, where I went, let's just duplicate everything. And San Francisco can be a successful office. So we had our own accounting staff. And uh, in later years, we had our own IT staff and we had our own HR people. And then the third office in Washington, DC started, same thing. So every office had an accounting staff, let's just pick on accounting for a minute, that reported not to the CFO, but to the managing principal in that office. Uh, the same thing with IT staff. Well, there are the seeds of trouble. Whose accounting are we looking for? What version of the truth would you like? We actually had offices arguing with our CFO. He said, you know, you're losing money. No, we're not. We're making money. That's what my accountants are telling me. How could that be? And it depends on what rules you're following in accounting. Do you ever unearn fee because you haven't collected it? If you're really generous to yourself, you make money. But if you're honest with yourself, you're losing money. So it became clear to me, even before I was the CEO, that we needed to have accounting in each office because it's good to have it close to the project teams. We've learned that some firms have a centralized accounting function in another city and all the accounting and billing and so on is remote. I actually don't, uh, don't agree with that. I think it's important to have the accountants in the office working with the project teams on project accounting and working with the office leadership on office-wide budgeting and spending. But they shouldn't be reporting to the managing principal. They should be reporting up through to the CFO so that we all have the same rule book. And so uh, making that change was difficult. People didn't want to give up their accountants. And it's a funny thing. The accountants didn't actually change. The, the same accountants were in the office the day after we made the change. They were just not on the office payroll. Of course, that meant that the central overhead went up. 
So people complained, well, now you you ballooned up central overhead because all the accountants are in the central part of the overhead, which is true. I said, well, yes, all we've done here is left pocket, right pocket. The money you're spending for central overhead is money you used to spend for local overhead. You've given up some and gotten some. So uh, it was difficult to get through the XCOM and then difficult to get through the board. But once we did it, an amazing thing happened. I would say within six months, nobody could ever understand why we hadn't done it sooner. Everything smoothed out. The accountants continued to do their work in the offices. The influence of central accounting on the local accountants was really simple, a few rules, 50% rule and so on. Same thing with IT, oh my gosh. So we went through a wrenching change to put all the IT people in the firm, just as we had with the accountants, together under an IT leader. And harmony returned because we were all working together. Yeah, it sounds as you're telling the story um, of these changes that before you made these changes, there was a sense of chaos and maybe it wasn't so apparent, but that chaos causes stress and anxiety and a disruption. And when you bring structure to a system, people sort of resist it at first because it's a change. But once the structure is established, people start feeling more comfortable because there are rules and everybody knows the rules and they can play by the rules. And now everybody knows how everybody else is doing it. And that harmony starts to kick in. Yes. And, and Mark, I think the th thing that's important for anybody that's listening that has their own firm or wants their own firm, you, you don't succeed or fail as a firm based on your accounting or your HR. Those are support services. You, you succeed or fail based on how successfully you, you win the work, you design the work, and you deliver the work, and how successfully you give service to your client. These support services need to be there for you and your people. For heaven's sake, you don't need friction there. You need those to be as smooth as they can possibly be. Had people thought more about this when the firm began to expand so quickly, we could have made the rules at the time of expansion and there wouldn't have been any question but we didn't grow that way. So I, I like to say we grew big before we grew up. So this was part of growing up, get a new suit of clothes for HOK that fit the size of the firm, the new way of working uh, that the firm absolutely needed. And, and everybody knew it, but no one was the first to act until we finally did it together. Yeah. And HOK really was a pioneer in the growth, you know, this new structure of these mega firms. Right. So yes. everything that you developed was developed the best they knew at the time. Looking back, it's easy to say, you know, if we did it a different way, it would have been better. But you did it the best way that you knew at the time, which is exactly why you wrote the book, which is exactly why we're, we're recording this podcast, because the next world class architecture firm can learn from what you've learned at HF yes. and apply that before they start to establish their firms and grow. You know, it would, it would really please me if young architects that are growing their own world-class firm didn't make the same mistakes and, and learn something from this podcast series or from my book that allowed them to skip over a couple of the mistakes. The world needs great architecture, great architects. And uh, we do a disservice to ourselves and to this world by not organizing ourselves properly 
to take our proper place in as needed pillars in our society. So what are the lessons we should take away today, Patrick? I think the first one is that if you're going to, if you say you're going to do something, you better do it. And uh, you start at the big problem, let's say the leadership. If the leadership isn't unified to accomplish some great purpose, you probably won't accomplish it. So blocking and tackling, lists of things to do, following up, making sure that people, you know, if you didn't get that finished, it's going to be on the list next week. Uh, so it's blocking and tackling. It's positive peer pressure for the your leadership group, your board, so that people all know, oh, we all have to do this together. And uh, it's also not just talking about problems, but actually taking action. Uh, that's why we had an action list. Endless talk about this is a problem, that's a problem, or hand-wringing doesn't accomplish anything. It's just wheel spinning. Communication is vital. Uh, I began to communicate uh, weekly uh, to all the staff in the firm with a firm-wide email, and then visiting each office twice a year for the first uh, number of years, uh, lots of trips, and talking to everybody in the staff, not just the leadership, and asking, uh, answering any question. Every question was a good one, except those that got maybe too personal about somebody. And uh, finally, meaning what you say means replacing key leaders if they're actually not doing what the firm needs doing it reluctantly, and if it must be done, doing it with class so that key leaders don't become um, wasted hum human beings uh, after HOK. And then finding the right people to put into place is always the big challenge, either recruiting from within or from outside. And there are lots of books written about how to recruit and how to size up people. My own simple little way that I learned over the years was very simple. I, I asked myself with each one, can they do the job? Do they have integrity? And will they work well as part of the team? To continue the story, come back next week for the next episode of Built Smart, where Patrick highlights the McLamey curve. I drew that on the board and I said, this is AIA B141 form of contract was built for hand drawing of buildings. And this is what it looks like. It has a big, looks like the snake that swallowed the elephant. There's a big bulge at working drawings. And that's where most of our effort is. I said, what's wrong with this? So I drew another curve starting in the upper left corner. And I said, here's the potential to change the design. Changing design is easy at the beginning. You can decide in a heartbeat to make the building smaller or larger if you had inputs as to whether you were too big or too small. But as you document more, the ability to change the design dramatically drops. Thank you for listening. To read along and see illustrations and personal photos that accompany this series, get Patrick's book, Designing a World-Class Architecture Firm. I encourage you to go grab a copy today and follow along as we continue the story. It's available now at gablemedia.com slash buildsmartbook. This podcast is a Gable Media production and is produced by Demetrius Lynch Jr. Gable Media is the home of curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. You can listen in, subscribe, and find more content like this from our network partners at gablemedia.com.
That's G-A-B-L media.com. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us. Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.